0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with very special guest, Jonathan Sue. Jonathan's the co-founder of Tribe. We previously had Arjun Sethy as his, his other co-founder on last year. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. So, Jonathan, you're the co-founder of Tribe. Before that, you spent a few years social capital. I think you started there in 2014. Yeah. Before that, background of Facebook, background of games, your PhD in physics. Maybe, maybe let's start with, you entered Venture in 2014 with a specific data background. Where have you been surprised or where's it been interesting to see where your background has been able to make an impact and where your background maybe hasn't in the sense of venture isn't ready to be changed in that direction? Because yeah. you know, a few years ago, there was this idea that software is going to change – data is going to change venture in every aspect, sourcing, selecting, supporting. And I think we've seen some areas where data and software has been able to make some impacts and some areas where maybe it's more artisan and more crafty uh, – more of a craft than we thought – you know, it's still an on, ongoing debate. So I'll, I'll let you take it from there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting it's an interesting question. I think th- the way to think about this is really to go back and think about how is it that data has affected companies more broadly. I mean, th- I think this is what we were dealing with at Facebook. You know, so at Facebook, I joined Facebook in 2009. I was there till 2014 and uh, really helped to uh, bring together the data science and analytics organization. You know, when people think about data science and analytics at Facebook, at least, you know, certainly back then, certainly to today to some degree, the, the first thing that comes to people's minds is that, oh, they use data to build algorithms, right? They build the news feed or they use data to, you know, build ad targeting or something like that. And that's definitely a huge use of the data. But there's this other story, this other side to it, which is that they use data to help them make better decisions, right? At, at, at Facebook, uh, at this point, I think there's about 1,500, 2,000 data science and analytics you know, folks there, and they're not building these algorithms that we're talking about. What they're doing is they're leveraging all this data, really mostly to make the vast majority of it to build better products, right? Like, yeah. can we use the data to help us understand um, what does it mean to build this product marginally better, or what does it mean to, you know, how are folks over there in, in, in this part of the world using it on these devices, and how do we how do we just make the product better? And so, data to um, you know influence the execution and operations, the product development. That's really what we oversaw at Facebook, um, and it, and that story is is not told, I think, as as often because it's not as obvious from the outside, right? Um, and it's sort of the same thing in venture. You know, when I joined um, Social Capital in 2014, really the initial focus was really working with portfolio companies. The idea is, you know, portfolio series A companies and early stage companies, you know, when, when a company is sort of around that series A, they have maybe 10 10 employees and they have some data, but it's not the highest priority of that for them to like dig through it and uncover all the insights. It, it doesn't make sense for that to be their top priority, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable and worth doing. And so that was a lot of the work that we did early on on was, um, you know, can we work with portfolio companies to help the data tell stories for them, to help make the data useful for them? Very much an extension of what we did at Facebook. You know, when we talk about 2000 data scientists, that's what they do. And so the question is, could we do that um, in portfolio companies very much in the context of helping the companies grow, helping the companies, you know, uh, today we would call it help them expand product market fit. But back then it was really grow, you know, it was the idea of growth. And that sort of formed sort of the backbone of, of, of the initial time that I spent in venture and, and has ended up being broadly sort of the, I think, the area where we've really focused on, um, you know, more broadly. This question of how is it that we understand growth? How is it that we understand product market fit? And then how is data science and analytics relevant for that? I think there are many different ways you can use data science or analytics in venture, right? I mean, when you yeah. think about venture, there's sourcing, there's evaluating, there's managing. And data science certainly has something to say about each of yeah. those aspects. Um, but really starting on that last aspect, you know, helping the, the companies after you've invested in them, that's really where we found the most value. And I think that that goes back to the sense that, you know, what is it we're trying to do as investors, you're trying to be great partners for entrepreneurs, Well, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to Grow, <laughs> so you know if you can help them do that in a way that's like you know not getting all in their face in a way that's helpful. If you can be a good partner, then clearly that's got to be valuable. And so that's that's really the thing that we've spent a vast bulk of our time exploring. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, that, that's what I've been spending my time exploring. Um, you know, um, in venture capital ever since I ever since totally. started.
0: And I'm curious why you found the most traction uh, supporting post investment. I I, I I see why you found a lot of traction there. I'm curious, has there been is it less obvious how. You know your your skill set, or even just data and software in general, can r- meaningfully influence the selection process or the sourcing process. Or uh, how do you think about those?
1: Yeah, it definitely affects the other two. Um, I would say as a byproduct. You know, so so you know um, you know stepping over to the sourcing side. So sourcing, you know, we we definitely do some data stuff in sourcing, but by far the most valuable thing we do is we try to give um, good, useful analytical feedback to companies that we meet with, whether we invest in them or not and you know by and large companies have a great experience with us um you know sharing data with us talking through metrics talking through how product strategy turns into numbers and that activity adds value no matter what and then hopefully that drives good vibes and it gets them to yeah. send us people it gets their other seed investors to think you know about us a little differently than other series and in, um investors and that drives deal flow and that that inbound deal flow is going to be far more powerful than any algorithm that i can cook up based on some data sets right yeah. because because you know when you think about doing some sort of algorithmic sourcing you kind of face this problem you know if you run let's say you're running a, a good company you're you're a seed stage company you're you're doing great and somebody comes up to you and says hey my algorithm says we should talk your natural inclination is like, okay, uh, well, I have all these other investors who've been spending time trying to help me. Like, well, who are you? <laughs> right. So, so the thing is sourcing. So, so that's kind of what we found was that, you know, sourcing for us, um, you know, um, it's a much more personal thing. There's a natural constraint in venture, which I think, which I think is, is that, and that's really the place where we've been focusing. And then on evaluation, you know, obviously like if you, if you believe that you can understand how growth and product market fit, you know, if you can understand the nuances there, if you believe you can understand it at an earlier stage better than others, then, yeah, maybe it'll help you, yeah. you know, um, be a better picker. And, and certainly we, we believe that. Um, but really, the focus is on helping companies. That's always the first thing. And then this other stuff is sort of we believe is
0: a great byproduct. Right. And is is just is picking just so much more of an art than, than a science?
1: Well, I think, you know, we would say that there's a very scientific a- art aspect to it. And then there are parts of it that are art. You know, um, the analogy I like to use, I like to say that um, that accountants were the first data scientists. This is a bit of an absurd thing to say. <laughs> so so what does that mean? So what does an accountant do? An accountant takes a pile of raw data the ledger, right, every transaction, and they turn it into something useful, like an income statement or a balance sheet. That's really all data scientists do, right? We take a big pile of raw data. It's important that it's raw. That's only data scientists really deal with raw data. We start with a big pile of raw data and turn it into something useful. Maybe we do a bunch of fancy whizzy math, like, you know, you know, we, we can do lots of math, but in the end of the day, if you're a strategic decision maker, CEO or an investor or whatever, you're trying to make a big decision, you don't care about fancy math, you care about, you know, can I trust this? Is it useful, right? And so that's really, um, you know, that's really where we've focused our time. Um, when we think about data, that's the first bit. It's yeah. more accounting-like. You know, um, I have this saying that like, you know, Warren Buffett, do you think he looks at income statements? Well, yes, right? Would he ever invest based only on an income statement? No, that would be foolish, <laughs> right? Would he pass based on an income statement alone? Yes, right? And, so, and, that's, and that's a great example of data being used in an investment context, yeah. right? It's not AI. It's not machine learning, but... You know Warren Buffett uses income statements. That is a great use of data. Yeah. That that is in line with the thing I said before about co- how companies use data to improve their operations, to improve their execution, and is in line with how we think broadly about using data science yeah. um, and analytics in the evaluation process in the early stage venture.
0: And so, the would that imply on the source side, for example, that capital as a service is not something you guys are building at Tribe, or I assume. What what are the lessons from from that? experiment?
1: Well, at Social Capital, you know, we built a bunch of different things uh, that that tried to use data in different ways. One of the ways that we tried To use it was, you know, to use these approaches to understand product market fit at the early stage and automatically invest in them. If you think about it, it's not so crazy because if you think about like debt underwriting, right? If I if I need a home loan, like a mortgage, I go in and um, the bank effectively does an algorithmic underwriting. Yes, they use humans to do it, but they're basically following a rule book, and the rule book tells them when to invest, i.e., underwrite debt, and when not to. So, so it's not super crazy. I think the idea of high capital service now, now, um, you know, it. turns out that there are a bunch of difficulties there because, you know, uh, buying debt secured by a house is very different from buying equity in an early stage company. They're just yeah. totally different assets. And it turns out that, you know, it's not so obvious how to extend one into the other. So, so you know, we explore that as social capital. It's not something that we are currently exploring at Tribe, not something we're aiming to explore. But, you know, I definitely think it was something that that was that that was audacious in its own way. And, and you know, and honestly, there's many other things like that broadly, right? I mean, financial services broadly, you know, what one of the things is going on in the last five, 10 years is there's just many different ways to underwrite debt equity. I mean, income sharing agreements with education, right? There's many different ways to sort of um, quote unquote underwrite an investment, whether the the investment is debt or equity. Um, And and I think capital service was one of those, one of those attempts. You know, I think of it in that context.
0: I I do want to transition to some of the company building stuff, but first I want to make sure we cover the extent to which you got you and your team and, and broader source team as well. And tribe team as well really innovated within venture because, there aren't that many people who are launching different kinds of, of data products to take a stab and some things work and some things don't, and some things, little parts of them work. So I'm curious at social, if you can sort of run through whatever experiments you, your team or broadly experimented with, there was cast, which you talked about capital as a service. It was eight ball. What is the, the,
1: when we think about eight ball, you see, so it's an, un, sort of a moniker that we came up with at social capital, but it's honestly not, it, it's a, so there's on the one hand, the way I described it, there's, something that looks kind of like accounting. And so the question here is like, how do you understand product market fit the way that accounting understands sort of the cash and financial position of a company, right? If you think about what accounting does, accounting is kind of neat because what it does is it basically, it takes the history of a company and it takes that in, that in leisure and it turns it into a bunch of variables that are kind of like well understood, yeah. right? Here's an income statement. The income statement doesn't predict the future. What it yeah. does is it helps parameterize the past in a bunch of variables that you and I can talk about sensibly yeah. <laughs> and, and in a bunch of variables that I don't have to reinvent for every new company. It's like, oh, you know, insurance company, I don't have to reinvent accounting. Accounting, like the co- core high-level concepts of accounting continue to, to apply. And then in any one sector, you kind of have to sp- get specific about it, right? And so when we think about product market fit, it's just similar thing. You know, we have this framework for understanding early stage product market fit that works kind of like accounting in the sense that it's a bunch of well-defined variables so yeah. that we can look at different companies and and understand what's going on and just have a sensible conversation. Um, and and that framework, you know, we called it the APL um, uh, at Social Capital, and we continue to do so today. Um, there's sort of the framework aspect of it. It's a framework for helping you understand the past. But then there's this other question of, you know, if some if if we you know, if you go back to financial statements for a moment, if someone does an audit on you, they do your financial statements for you and they give it back to you, yeah. right? That's like a product that you right. give. And so we also, you know, use the term eight ball to, to refer to the thing that we give back to, to founders. It's like the analysis right. that we do for you. Um, and then, you know, you could imagine other thing you could imagine building software that does it, and you could imagine putting the software on the internet and, you know, like QuickBooks online for finance, right? Yeah. Um, and there are many different versions of it, but at its very base, it's sort of a conceptual way of understanding product market fit in terms of a bunch of um, analytical quantitative variables that are reasonable to compute given today's products, given yeah. today's technology. They're, you know, you should, I should note that like when I, when I talk about the, these analytical frameworks, people, you know, many people have come up with similar things. They were all invented in the mid-2000s, really. Right. You know, what happened was, um, in the social web era, all of a sudden, you had these companies that were all of a sudden able to store a ton of data. Facebook was one of them, Zynga, you know, all those social gaming companies. And every one of them is like, we have this big, giant pile of data. Um, what, what what, can I use this for? Well, the most important thing is to grow, so let's use the data to try to grow. Right. And each one try to reinvent some framework for understanding how to grow and how to use the data to their advantage. Um, and, you know, as we know now, right. The social gaming companies, a lot of them were really able to use it to their advantage. Some for better, some for worse. Uh, but it was really, you know, that was really the, the the era in which this began because it was the first time you could store the data. You know, people running Pepsi forty years ago would have loved to do this, I'm sure. But the ability, you know, do you think Pepsi in 1980 would have been able to say, okay, what is the, you know what is the 85th percentile of cumulative cans of Pepsi drunk after, you know, 24 months of the first Pepsi, (laughs) you know, like they would never have been able to compute such a thing because they never had the data. So, you know, because we have this data available to us now, we have this opportunity at this point in history to be able to like, you know, take that data and
0: think about it in this way. And why, why was it the mid 2000s and not the night, you know, 90s with Amazon or well, the age. technology
1: needed to happen, right? In the, in, the, in the mid-2000s is when the storage got cheap, <laughs> right? Like, uh, you know, um, I, I mean, specifically at Facebook, we had this giant, you know, distributed file system that, and, you, you know, you could build tools on top of it that would make it easy for analysts to do yeah. stuff on it. That didn't exist the decade before, right? right. Like, yeah, the storage had to get cheap and the technology had to get to the point where you could literally hire a bunch of folks who basically have MBAs and have them actually be useful on it. Whereas, like, if you look in the mid-90s, mid-80s, if you handed a raw relational database to an MBA, and ask them to yeah. do stuff that you'd, you'd be hard pressed, cause just because the technology made it very difficult. Could there be
0: another technological shift that mirrored the one in the mid two thousands that makes uh, in the next decade or, or so or two that makes it even makes another sort of a uh, compound effect of? data being available?
1: Yeah, yeah. We think, I think about this a lot, actually, because you know, as you can imagine, I see a lot of companies that try to build analytics products or right, BI yeah. products. Actually, a lot of folks say to me, they say, oh, I read your articles. I turned it into a product. Here it is. Yeah. And I'm like, that's cool. But the thing is, you know, when I think about it, it goes back to accounting, right? If you think about the value of accounting um, in the world, does the value of accounting mostly a lo- you know, sit inside companies that implement software for it, like, uh, you know, like QuickBooks or something? Or, or is most of the value actually in Excel? Yeah. Right? It's actually in Excel, you know, um, um, there's this thing I like to say that you, you know, young data scientists. I point out to them like linear regression. Let's take linear regression. If you go back 100 years, um, right, and you say 100 years ago, how many times did linear regression happen in the world? The answer is not that much because if you wanted to do linear regression, what would you have to do? You have to hire a statistician who would have to get a piece of paper and a pencil, and they would have to write down a bunch of stuff. They'd have to do this really horrible math by hand right maybe 120 years ago in order to do linear regression. nowadays how often does linear regression happen well every second it happens on like a bazillion computers right your computer is just doing linear regression; you don't even know it for it to do random things right um and you know to give you an example of where it happens a lot it mostly happens in excel right it's like it's like bankers or insurance analysts doing some linear regression, and they just kind of do it in excel and so that's where most of it happens right and so the lesson there is that f- something that was once very hard to do is all of a sudden very easy to do and when you make it easy to do it everybody just kind of does it and they kind of do it wrong you know we can imagine bankers probably do linear regression wrong i mean this is a physicist in me talking but like who cares they get value out of it right and so when i think about like you know all the stuff that's happened in the last sort of 10 years around machine learning and ai and it's all very impressive but the natural Troll. End state of that stuff is likely inside something that looks like an Excel, right? It's not going to realize its full potential unless we're in a position where everybody can use it. And I literally mean everybody. Nobody nobody needs computer science degrees. Nobody needs to be super intense, right? So, so I think that's kind of that, that, that's an important thing to think about. It's like, how are these, how are these, uh, algorithmic data methodologies going to be democratized in some sense, right? What is going to be the quote unquote Excel, you know, what Excel did for linear regression? What's, what's it going to be for this other stuff?
0: Yeah. And so and,
1: any ideas? I don't. I mean, I, well, we see a lot of we see we see companies that, that that do stuff, and I think that honestly, I don't think there'll be one answer, right? Excel uh, was a bit of a sort of um, artifact of history. The, the the fact that Excel is at once once the power tool for the banker, but it's also the power tool for the insurance guy, and is is the power tool for the for the you know performance marketing analyst at a company that's remarkable that it's one tool that does that, um, and I think that's partially an artifact of the past, right? Um, The likely case in the future is that there are tools that are a bit more vertical specific, right? It's like, you know, the next wave of technology will probably be more like, Something that works for the banker and then there'll be something special for the insurance analyst. And that's, that's not so unreasonable because, you know, their use cases, they're pretty different and using, as we all know, all of us who've done a lot of Excel, it's kind of kludgy to try to force Excel to do all this stuff. And, you know, I remember sitting next to, um, you know, my friends who have, who have finance backgrounds and watching them sit at at Excel, they just do all this crazy stuff. And it reminds me of sitting next to a software, a great software engineer. Like, you know, I, I wrote a lot of code, but I was never very, very good at it and sitting next to a great software engineer and they're just busting out all this stuff. And I'm like, Whoa. (laughs) And and the thing is those two behaviors are actually very similar. Uh, I think that the software engineers in us, we like to sort of think, oh, we're somehow the Excel stuff is beneath us, but it's not, right? Both of you are trying to like use technology to create some representation of the world, a quote unquote model of some sort, whether the model be in some object oriented software or the model is a financial model of some sort. You're both trying to build a model and you have some technology that you're fluent in, right? Um, and, and yeah, so, so I mean, that it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't know.
0: Totally. <laughs> the, I want to get to product market company building, but just to close the loop, are there any other tools or products that, whether it's social capital tribe were interesting experiments worth mentioning adventure, if not, no, no pressure, we could skip to some other stuff.
1: Um, I think that, that was the biggest one, you know, I, you know, the, these were, this has always been the area that, 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 that we focused on really product market fit. You know, I think other areas that we've thought about data, people ask us this all the time. They say, how do you use data to measure talent? Because talent is so important. And yes. I agree. Talent is so important. And so I frame it this way. Okay. So if you think about You know, what is it that data does for you? Well, what data does is it helps you control bias, right? You look at a situation before you have data, you're like, I think X, Y, Z is true. And then you have data and it's like, oh, X was true, Y and Z not so true, right? And, you know, it just helps you sort of verify. And, and and how is it, you know, that data helps in talent? You know, where are the best examples of that? I would submit that I believe the best examples of that are things like college applications. Now, this is kind of crazy, right? If if you were to say to somebody, oh, I believe college applications is wonderful data-driven thing, they'd say, oh my God, you're so wrong. Um, college applicants is a, it's this hugely biased system, only, you know, benefits the rich and the so on and so forth. Um, but, but I mean, mean, that might be true now, but if you think about it relative to like a hundred years ago, that's definitely not the case, right? It's certainly the case today that when you apply to college, you give them a bunch of data. Your GPA, your transcript, your standardized test scores—they try to—they—they try to turn you into a bunch of numbers, right? And then they try—and then they certainly use some discretion at the end, I'm sure, you know. But if you think about college applications as a whole, not for any one school, because of course any one school is going to get it right and wrong sometimes. But if you think about the overall system of, you know, we generate all these 18-year-olds who who go to college. That whole system is a fairly data-driven way of you know, attempting to assess talent. That's what it is. And it's far more data-driven now than it was 100 years ago, right? and you know when we think about when i think about like data and talent i think about that a lot it's like well how, there are good things about that there are bad things about that right There are clearly good things and that it helps you control bias There are clearly bad things because it's going to help you you know reinforce stereotypes or reinforce possibly some, some injustice that exists before but that's true but that does you know you don't want that to stop you from trying right yeah. from from trying to implement it in some way um, i don't have a good solution here but this is something we've, we've thought about a lot another area where this actually happens is in terms of hiring in the large tech companies if you go into a company like facebook or Google and you look at how they hire technical talent, um, actually all talent, they have a bunch of mechanisms in place to help them reduce bias, right? They give their feedback on the interview blind, right? Like it's like you interview someone, you write your feedback in blind, nobody else before reading anybody else's feedback, right? As opposed to, you know, I read everybody else's feedback, everybody tells me what they think about the candidate, then I meet the candidate, hugely biasing, right? So, so, you know, these tech companies have done a bunch of stuff to try to de-bias the situation as, as best as possible. You know, even, uh, you know, apparently, I've heard that at like a, at Facebook, when they write interview feedback, they're not allowed to use gender pronouns. All the feedback is ungendered just to remove that bias. Um, and so, and so, you know, there are these practices that these companies have done to try to de-bias and try to make their hiring, you know, more data-driven maybe, but really more bias-controlled right? Um, and then if you think about sort of legacy companies, you know, do you think that like, I don't know, Geico Insurance hires that way? Almost certainly not. You know, so that's another angle that I've been thinking about. It's like, well, are there ways that we can use some of those, um, you know, uh, philosophies to sort of, um, you know, de-bias how we think about assessing talent? But but for us, you know, because part of where we invest, we think so much about product market fit. this is always, a, you know, step two for us yeah. a little bit. Um, but uh, and a very important step two for us. But, um, you know, the product market fit for us has always been sort of yeah. This <laughs> is on,
0: on the talent side. It's interesting because I uh, we just had Tyler Cowen on the podcast, and he's now writing a book on on talent and evaluating talent, assessing talent. And he is surprised, maybe even shocked, that I don't speak for him at how unrigorous venture capitalists are. He thought they would be the the pinnacles of of talent evaluation and how much of it really is just is just gut. Is there yeah yeah. In the gut?
1: I mean, it's like you know uh, you know if you think back to going back to like mortgage underwriting, right. If you look at like mortgage underwriting in the like early part of the 20th century, it's like if you needed to mortgage, how do you think you did it? Well, you would go to the bank in the corner and you'd be like, "Oh, my wife you know does lawn bowling with your wife. you know you and I, we both went to Harvard. You should write me a loan and they would just do it, right. Yeah. Totally by gut. And, and what's happened in the last hundred years? Now, of course, that's not the case. There's all this data involved. And it's a combination of two things, right? On the one hand, there's like regulation that comes yeah. in and says you have to do it this way to be fair. But on the other hand, it's also in the business interest of the banks, right? It's in the, it's in the business interest of the capital allocators yeah. at some level to use data to try to get better at it. And I think that's, it's the same thing, you know, in venture. Um, there, there's, there's huge swaths of it that just involve enormous amounts of discretion and gut. Yeah. And um, and I think part of what we do at Tribe is you know we really try not to get rid of that because there's a lot of stuff that's really important in that, yeah. the intuition, the traditional component of venture, but it doesn't mean that there's no space to add. Something objective. Right. Right. And the question is, how can you do both of these at once? You know, are there other systems in the world that try to mix both of these activities at once and and get somewhere successful? You know, and when I think about the operations of these internal companies using data, when I think about the system of, you know, college admissions or or these other systems, they're good examples of systems that that do a decent job, or at least they're systems that you can learn from, you
0: know. But is it fair to say that we're, we're more at like the check, checklist manifesto stage of making sure that people are just running a good process and being consistent every time versus being at the sort of like, you know, hypothetical sort of matter mark for founders or mat, like, you know, I you grew up in Atlanta and you're more likely to, you, these parameters about your life make you more likely to be successful. Not, you know, that, that's his own version of bias, but would like, are we, is that fair to say we're more at, you know, making the level of, on the talent level when we're thinking about investing in founders or we're thinking about even, even hiring people, just making sure we're running a good process versus truly using data inputs about their life. Yeah. To...
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, the really, the big thing that, that's happened is just that there's been an explosion of investors, right? You know, if there, if there are only five investors, then it's like, well, let's hope that they're doing the right and just thing for the society, for society at large, you know, or maybe we can regulate them to do it. But, you know, one of the things that's happened in early stage venture is that there's just now an explosion of firms, which means that for any possible, you know, you know you know, philosophical approach or investment philosophy or process that you can dream up, there probably exists a firm that does it, right? And that's good for entrepreneurs, right? Because from an entrepreneur's point of view, it's like, well, now instead of talking to just the five guys on Sandhill, there's like hundreds of investors I can theoretically talk to, I can find one that fits with me. And so, you know, when you ask me, like, where are we stage wise? Well, I think there are investors who are really into checklists. I think checklists are great. You know, there are certainly investors out there who really try to make it a black box, a quant machine. You know, yeah. there are rumors about what Google Ventures does internally with yeah. some sort of box that has a green and red light on it. Who knows? I don't, I don't really know. And then there, there's, but the thing is like, I, I would never think of any one of these as like a statement about where venture is going. I think each one of them is a statement that because venture is growing by so much, anything is possible, including these things, yeah. you know, and I think that's true of us at Tribe also, you know, we would, we would not claim that we are where the future is. We would claim that we're one of many and that we have an approach that we think works for us, yeah. you know, um, and, and we hope that if other people find it valuable, we hope that they will come to us or, you know, share deals with us. And that's, that's our hope. We don't, we don't have any claim of
0: being like the only one. Right. How would you crystal close the loop on this, this, this topic, how would you crystallize what makes Tribe different versus benchmark or Greylock and or traditional you know, top firms in terms of uh, how you view the business differently. And you know, ten years from now, if we're talking about the future of venture, maybe I'll, I'll rephrase it to ask, what do you think about when you think about the future of venture, how our firm's gonna look different in ten years, or you know, Peter Boy would say anything's gonna look the same, basically. Yeah, I mean, some,
1: it'll yeah. just keep growing, I think. And, and as it grows, there'll be firms of every flavor, really every flavor, right? There'll be some firm that just does data-driven sourcing, but completely discretionary evaluation only in FinTech, only in Atlanta. There will be a firm like that one day, right? It's, um, in physics, you call this like, um, you call these systems ergodic. Yeah. Ergodic systems are ones that explore every possible configuration. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like if you have a room and you throw a ball into the room and it bounces around forever. At some point, it touches every point in the room, yeah. right? Um, and and I think that's actually what happens, you know, when I think about what we focus on, we focus on product market fit growth, right. And we want to help you grow. You know, we want to be your partners. We want to be great partners. If, if it matters to you to grow and you want a partner who understands that and who's going to be a partner with you for that. What that partially means is that there are other areas where we don't think we're amazing. You know, like, um, talent is a great example. Like, uh, there are other firms who are like, we will find you the best VP of sales. We're like, yeah, we'll help you, but we don't claim to be you know the greatest at this we we claim to be okay at it, <laughs> you know um you know and 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 I think that's you know firms are going to specialize where they specialize, and that's and that's great you know yeah. for uh, and if you were ask me to forecast in the future, I think it'll be more of that in the sense of just more 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 versions of the thing right
0: yeah. was the term Er ergodotic ergodic ergodic yes ergodicity maybe ergodicity
1: is our systems that
0: that are ergodic yeah Yeah. i keep hearing that term i don't know if it's used in the concept of like almost anti-fragile or yeah like yeah.
1: Yeah. So so it's a similar thing, right? It's like because the system itself. I mean, right. If you think about venture capital at a system level, right, would we be better off, right, having all this venture capital flowing through five firms, or would we be better off having it flow through through five thousand? At a system level, we're better. At a system level, we're better off with five thousand, right? Because that means if any one of them fails or is turning out to be doing something evil or horrible or loses money, then like it doesn't destroy the whole thing. Whereas if yeah. there are only five of them, then all sorts of awful things happen, right? You don't want like choke points in the system. You want the yeah. system to be like distributed. Highly distributed, right? Um, and that's that's sort of where, where you seem to get the best outcomes. That's kind of, I mean, I think an approximate takeaway for some of this stuff from from Talib's work. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. I, I have this question I've been asking. I haven't heard any good perspectives on it. Maybe your physics background can can lend some some insight into it. Which is basically the the evolution between decentralization and centralization. And the way I, the way I ask it is: in ten years from now, are we more likely to have one language or thousands of languages? One currency or thousands of currencies? this may be 100 years from now, 100 years, one country or, or thousands of countries? Like, is there likely to be consolidation or deconsolidation? And I, I get that the answer is verse, some versions of both and there are phases, but what are the dynamics that cause there to be more consolidation or deconsolidation? And how, how, how can we think about predicting
1: yeah, well, I think that I, I, you know, I'm generally of the belief that markets and economies left on their own, right? Um, there are aspects of them that tend towards, right, decentralization, and then there are aspects of them that tend towards monopoly, right? For instance, the the, the tendency towards fragmentation is the tendency for people want to start businesses. The fact that you want to start a business is itself a manifestation of the tendency for the system to fragment, right? Uh, but then at the same time, we know that there are dynamics that you know accrue sort of power to the firms or or entities that are already powerful. So I think both happen to some degree, right? And the thing that sort of intervenes itself, of course, is Politics, right? Because you know, um, a political body can come in and sort of you know manipulate the system in one direction or the other. Um, you know, certainly history would seem to suggest that there's sort of a ebb and flow here. There's not sort of like one end state, yeah. right? I mean, like on the one hand, you could say China is a great example of like fully central sort of you know um, you know monopoly power uh, if you look at it through the lens of sort of the government. But at the same time, we all we also know there's this massive thriving yeah. capitalist entrepreneurial community there that would suggest that the opposite end. Yeah. And both of these things can be true at one. Once, right. It's really sort of reflection of our of our facile attempt to <laughs> to label the thing when the thing is far too complicated for us. To
0: yeah. Label. <laughs> it goes loop on some of the talent stuff. If you were a uh, head of Harvard uh, admission, just entirely soup to nuts, what might you add or do differently or? than what you perceive Harvard or or Harvard-esque institutions doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I would be humble and try to learn what they've done because I think that most of these systems, something like Harvard admissions or something like, I don't know, how Blackstone does an investment, these are probably like, There are processes that have been going on for a long time, and the improvements are likely on the edges. It's not like an overhaul, right? right? (laughs) You know, I think, you know, American government's that way too, right? American government's structured to be like – to have a separation of powers, to be frustrated all the time. People are like, oh, why doesn't anything ever change? Well, it's designed to not change. (laughs) The whole point of the system is to not change, right? Um, And and I think it's the same thing with with something like like this, right? It's like I would go in – you know humbly yeah. to, to see like okay what's going on where do you guys think yeah. the improvements are i mean this is one of the thing with with all these systems that, that that people like to poke out from afar whether it be harvard or whether it be the government or whether it be a company the operations yeah. of some company we like to sit from afar and like snipe at it. oh if i were running the place i would do so much better but you know that's you're not giving enough credit to the people who work at these companies the people who work inside these companies are smart people they're trying to do yeah. the right thing um and it's wrong for us to try to just you know, demonize them, um, you know, at every turn, because that's what the media wants us to do. You know, the, the more correct thing to do is to appreciate that people are generally good, trying to do hard, trying to do the right yeah. thing. And there's likely some stuff on the margins that needs to happen. Yeah. Right. I think that's true for all, a lot of these companies.
0: Well, one thing I'm interested in just a broader level of evaluating talent is, is reference checks are interesting. We have all this information in our heads about other people and how good we think they are and how, you know we've worked with many of them and and how good they are and uh it's a very manual process to consistently get references it's, it's a repetitive process and you only get you know a very small fraction of the total available data that is on, on this person o- what people think about them i wonder if that information if that will become a more efficient market over time uh by becoming digital in a way would that, you want
1: it to be more efficient I mean, <laughs> there, there's some dystopian elements to it
0: but if um it, Hopefully, we'd get the positive side. Would be you'd get people a chance who are not getting a chance currently, and and university is an interesting example because it, there's not a ton of data point. You haven't like worked jobs, you know, but hey, I don't know. You've been in classes. You've had a lot of teachers. And how many references are they really doing on individual people? What do they see? They see your college essay. They see your report card and. They make yeah, a decision, right? of
1: course. The fully dystopian version of this, right, is this like Chinese. Black marriage. In China, yeah. there's the like um, social kind of social score where they like theoretically like watch you with a bunch of cameras, and depending on your behavior, they may or may not underwrite yeah, a loan for that's you. A <laughs> Which is the fully dystopian end of this of this story. I, I don't know. I think you know it's interesting if you think about America in America, right? We have like credit bureaus, right? There are three of them, not yeah. not not one. There are three, and I guess they all kind of come back with the same the same answer. But each bank kind of underwrites differently, and now there are a bunch of non bank financial actors that will underwrite differently you know it's like um it's reasonable for for there to exist entities that try to collate this kind of feedback information yeah. like credit bureaus right but it's also reasonable for people to do what they can to like get around them right it, maybe another way to put it it's reasonable that the government doesn't mandate that any of them be fully monopoly <laughs> right the yeah. right government kind of sits back and says well okay they're credit bureaus or rating agencies or some such you maybe should use them but you know we're not going to super force it depending on the situation, and I think it's probably the same thing when it comes to talent, right? Um, in some sense, there there is one big standardized reference for talent. It's LinkedIn. I <laughs> go to LinkedIn and see exactly what's on your resume, but somehow we want more than that. The standard thing is not enough, yeah. right? And okay, now you want you know it's like um, you know if you go back to the statement I said about earlier about uh, uh, you know you want data that gives you an output that is useful and that you can trust, yeah. right? Well, LinkedIn, I feel like you can trust it, right? You believe that it's mostly truthy, what people write on there. Is it useful? Yes and no. It's useful to like for the first kind of yeah. view. But we all know, those of us who work, think about talent a lot, that it's never enough, right? And the reality is any machine that tried to give you the answer, you probably wouldn't trust it, yeah. right? I mean, like, would you 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 know, would you trust a machine to pick your wife for you? Yeah. Nobody would do that. Um, you know? I have this saying that like, you know, you should use data when you're making a large end of decisions. Like for instance, if, um, if I'm wondering what ad to show you when you're on Facebook, I should use an algorithm to do this. Why? Because I'm making so many thousands of decisions every second, you know, algorithms good. But if you're making a very low end decision, data is probably only marginally helpful. Low end decisions are what college do I go to? Yeah. Who should I marry? <laughs> should I have a child or not? <laughs> right. And, and like, I think when you invest in an early stage company, like, you know, for most of us who do, you know, sort of, um, early stage investing you don't make a ton of them maybe you make like you know one a month tops maybe more you know for us it's like two a year three a year it's very low end activity and so it doesn't mean you don't use data it just means you have to use data in in the right way because the because of the because of the nature of the decision
0: making totally yeah and so let's let's get to to product market fit how do you define what product market fit is And how is that, how do you sort of see it differently than perhaps it's typically? Demonstrator, what mistakes or misconceptions people typically have?
1: Yeah, so so going back to the accounting analogy, we don't actually have a definition of product market fit. It's kind of like the concept of profitable. If you if you think about income statements, right, and then the concept of profitable, profitable actually doesn't really have a definition because it's like, do you mean contribution margin profitable, gross margin, net margin, operating EBIT? The definition of profitable that is appropriate depends on sort of the broader context of what you're trying to do, right? If you're like a a buyout investor, you're going to think about one thing. If you're a venture guy, you're going to think about something else, right? Um, Everybody kind of uses. differently depending on the situation. And similarly for us, when we think about product market fit, it actually depends on the situation. You know, um, you know, similarly to those other definitions, you know, for profit, we have like a lot of different ways of thinking about it that end up uh, applying to different sectors, different business models, different stages of a company um, and it's never black or white. And I think that's, that's one of the important things is, you know, you take the concept of product market fit from being this kind of binary gut thing, which is what yeah. most people treat it, and we turn it into this giant shades of gray thing that looks more like financial statements. Um, you know, we have to be willing to give up the the black and white. But in in exchange, we get a more nuanced view of the world.
0: Yeah. Would it be helpful to pick a sector or think about a few different sectors and how you look at key metrics differently within those sectors? I mean, yeah. I
1: mean, like, you know, so, you know, when when we think about, you know, a lot of a lot of this stuff was actually developed really, uh, you know, in the social web days and, and at Facebook, you know, so at Facebook, it was kind of like, and, and in social, social web companies in general, it was like, okay, um, this concept of monthly active users, yeah. is it growing? Right. That's kind of one. There's this whole concept of growth accounting, which is how is it growing? Is it growing because you're, you know, like there are different ways you can grow. Um, and then there's this concept around cohorts, right? Can you measure cohort retention? And, and oftentimes it might be lifetime value LTV, right? Um, there are many sort of cohort level stuff. And then, um, In social web world, we used to think about this concept of like, how often you use it, how intensely you use the product, right? Yeah. Um, they called it L28 uh, back then. It was like, how many days in the last 28 were you active? If you're, you know, you could be a monthly active user, but if you're only active one day in the month, that's very different from if you're active 28 days out of the month, right? And how do you get a feel for that gradation? And sort of those were kind of the three, those were three of the pillars that ended up, from my point of view anyway, being very common, no matter who came up with it. You know, whether the folks at Twitter, or the folks at Facebook, the folks at Zynga, we all came up with roughly similar things and they all... These three were pretty common. And so for us, those three sort of formed the, the base set, um, of things to look at. And, you know, I wrote a bunch of articles about this topic and, um, I think one of the important things is that these frameworks, they work whether or not the value that's moving around has anything to do with dollars, right? Um, A lot of these frameworks, as I mentioned, were developed in the context of users, visitors, right? Um, Whereas, as we know, income statements are all about dollars, right? And they're really different. Um, But, you know, SaaS company, SaaS SaaS business models are ones that sort of lend themselves where they're kind of similar, right? Where the dollars and the usage roughly line up. And so, hence, you can use a lot of these similar product market fit frameworks for both dollars, or usage or really anything else. Really, you know, the way the way we think about it is it's it's anywhere where there is value being exchanged between the product and the user, right? Yeah. If is the if the user decides to spend time looking at the product, uploading a photo or give money or whatever, there's some value exchange, a unit of value that's exchanging hands, right? It's a transaction. And going yeah. back to the ledger example, now you have a ledger of such transactions. Can you turn that ledger, you know, into an income statement sort of regardless of whether the ledger was counting dollars or
0: yeah. not? So let's, let's look into consumer social a little bit. You guys did, um, what was it Muse yeah. uh, as, uh, w- with us as well. When you look at consumer social stuff, some people look at, uh, you know, we talk about monthly, uh, active growth, you know, weekly active growth, daily active, daily active users. People talk about retention. People talk about the K factor. Uh, how might you? look at consumer social types of companies or what's important. I mean, all of those things yeah. that
1: you just said, I think, you know, we would end up utilizing all of yeah. those in sort of the same way. It's not that different, I think. You know, I think, you know, the, the thing that's maybe novel is more taking the things that you would learn if you had a really, if you stared at consumer social companies a whole bunch and you have all these frameworks for measuring them yeah. and then I drop you into like an insurance company. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and the the thing is, a lot of those things actually carry over. Um, the the sort of the the earliest or one of the first big manifestations of this was Slack. It was a great example where it's like, okay, on the one hand, there's a bunch of socially network type metrics you can use, but on the other hand, Slack is like a SaaS company. It has recurring revenue. Yeah. Okay, so like you know, can you look at it through both lenses, and can you sort of arrive at a, a view on on the company on the on the product? Yeah. Um, right, in a way that might be a little bit different than you would arrive at in you know if you only took one of the other two. Paths, yeah. and I think that's that's largely something we we look for actually. Are situations where like um, you know folks are are taking some expertise in one area and applying it to another. Maybe it's a social area applying it to insurance, or maybe sure. it's like I have expertise in payments and SaaS. Okay, like yeah. let's mush them together and see what sort of things come out of it. And I think that's that's where a lot of interesting things happen.
0: Let's take something like Superhuman. You know, we had this this line he took from someone else of, "Hey, product market fit for us is when people would be." you know, strongly upset if we didn't exist. Like, that's how we know that we are, you know, totally ingrained in, in their life. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's a comprehensive definition, but that was one definition or, or one sort of litmus test for him. Now, I'm incubating a product. It's called Cosine. It's sort of – I think I mentioned it. It's like a peer-to-peer uh, credential network sort of unbundling LinkedIn endorsements. And for us, it, it, we're wondering, is that the right metric or – because. I don't know if LinkedIn was started on that metric in terms of people seem to externally dislike the product yet find it so damn useful. And the things around sort of networks or status, sometimes people aren't as honest either with themselves or with others about how important things are to them if it's utility. And so is for us the the metric that they would be strongly upset if it didn't exist or is it that – they use it ever so often. So I'm curious just how often frameworks like the superhuman, for example, apply to different types of yeah. products.
1: Well, I think, you know, going back to the very beginning, right? Like uh, when we, when I think about data science and analytics, I think that the initial question is how do you use it to make the company operate better and build better products, right? Um, remember, the, the beginning of my career, I spent a lot of time there, right? Yeah. It's like, how do I sit alongside the product team and do this? Now... If you have all the data that superhuman has, right? And you say, okay, the only metric we're going to stare at is like how many people would be upset. Then it's kind of like you have this giant data set that you're just kind of wasting. And also it's not super obvious to me how a metric like that is useful to help you incrementally. Like if I push yeah. an incremental feature, can I, can I measure the incremental difference in this metric? So you know, I don't think the metric's bad, but it's just not so clear that it's useful to me from like a product development point of view and like yeah. a regular operating executional point of view. Um, and so, and, and that's where we tend to focus on is more like, okay, you know, can we find a metric that's useful for you that you can actually use yeah. day in, day out? Can you build teams around it? Can you point teams in that direction and tell them, go do this, go do that yeah. um, and get them fired up? That's oftentimes more what I think about, totally. right? Um, you know, if you go back to the accounting example, that's an example where it's really clear, right? It's like, okay, I have many business units. Each business unit runs a P and L. Clearly, I want more P than L. And, <laughs> and if I measure that and rally the team around it, cool. But then when you deal with things like usage, yeah. superhuman or some product that has some sort of engagement aspect, I feel like it has to be, you know, it's less obvious, right? Yeah. And then, but but you do want something that you can help with that that can actually help with operating decisions, strategic yeah. decision making. Like I said earlier, totally. Right?
0: Is it fair to say that we, we use strategic decision making? Is it fair to say that strategy? Keith Boyd defines strategy in terms of like understanding the equation of a business. I'm using I'm using a, a weaker definition here. I just
1: mean I may, maybe what I mean more is product definitions. Yeah. Um, certainly, like if you want to have like some higher definition of strategy, it may yeah. be not be useful. But
0: totally. <laughs> I. I what, I, what I'm interested in is if we can try to make it what 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 you do and we understand concrete and you have a lot of articles on it, but gives some examples for the audience whether it's like what would you do if you were at superhuman in terms of how, coming up with that metric or and or maybe some examples from your portfolio past or present you of you come, or what what it's like to sort of pick the metric or or yeah,
1: yeah. well I think picking a metric is always provisional. Right, so so it's important to realize that you're never going to get one to w- rule them all. Right, it's provisional, and I think a lot of the function of the metric you choose is to help orient your next end months, your next roadmap, your next thing. Right, uh, you know, at Facebook the beginning was like monthly active users, yeah. but then that's not being useful. It turned into like daily active users, and then that's not being useful. It turned into like time spent and all this other stuff, and then they had all these other metrics, and then each remember like that's a huge company, so each sub team has to have their own thing that they're trying yeah. to focus on, and and the thing you're focusing on is, is always provisional, and that's reasonable right because as a business owner right or as somebody who's like trying to run a business or run a product team the thing you're trying to achieve changes right yeah. like you work on this for this next six months so it
0: became provisional there because they outgrew it basically
1: well or you just change your focus <laughs> right uh, and i think that's that's the answer is that you know you change your focus and, and then that's and that's not unreasonable right, right. like you know it's like you, you change the, the thing you're looking at it doesn't mean that you stop measuring stuff <laughs> totally
0: yeah and are but are there specific mistakes that people make when they're picking their main metric or main KPI. I
1: think, I think, you know, there are a lot of, you know, mistakes. I mean, I I think, you know, if, if you pick a metric, that's like too high of a bar where like not enough users, you know, can sort of hit the number in some sense, right. You, you know, like you want to be in a, you you ideally, right. Want to be in a situation where every customer that you, that you interact with, you can get a feel for if that customer, if you are achieving product market fit with that customer, Right. um, And so, you know, I don't know. Netflix is like, OK, are they, are they paying you? Yes or no. That's binary. But then there's like, how much time are they spending with you? How many things are they watching? So on and so forth. That's like a non-binary number. Right. That yeah. that sort of has, um, you know, th- that's sort of unbounded on one end. Um, And so it lets you really um, measure that at some scale. Right. Now, if you went into Netflix and you said, OK, I'm going to measure it by a number of people who complain. Well, how many users complain, you know, right into support at Netflix in a given month, it's going to be some low number, right? And if you try to measure the the health of overall Netflix by that, it's going to be a little bit right. It's not going to be a good proxy. Um, but if you run the, obviously, if you run the customer support department, that's obviously the thing you want to measure, right? If, funnily enough, a lot of this stuff comes from like macroeconomics, right? If you think about GDP as sort of a reflection of the health of the economy, it has a bunch of problems. And if you sort of rewet economists, right, there's there's all these issues with GDP, but it's it's at least something that we can get around and people approximately understand. <laughs> and there's approximately a model in, you know, in, in economists heads, at least in terms of what makes it move up or down. It's something to rally around, right? Um, and I think that's like a reasonable, and everybody kind of contributes to. It, you know even right. though it's not super obvious you know how <laughs> yeah. you know i think that's a a pretty good metric i think you know it's clearly good in the sense that a lot of people have have paid attention to it right yeah. infant mortality that's a great one you know like how how often do you know like that's a, that's a great metric it's it's kind of a very very concrete uh, but then you know you know there there are all there are all sorts of var- varieties out there
0: totally i'm i'm digging into some of your your pieces here a little bit w- what are some mistakes or misconceptions that people have when they're accounting for either user growth or revenue growth, or what do they not see or measuring correctly or, or not fully appreciate in terms of, uh, think about those, or maybe we can, or yeah. cohort analysis.
1: Yeah, or... I think, I think what, you know, oftentimes the mistake, so here, here's a set of mistakes that we often see is that people spend a lot of time worrying, especially if there's revenue in the equation, they spend a lot of time worrying about revenue, a ton of time. Um, it's like, did I get them to pay me? Are they paying me? Which is reasonable. You're a small company, you want to make sure the cash works out, right? Um, but usually that's, that's only indicative of like one moment of value exchange. If you think about like an a SaaS company, the value exchange, the first value exchange is like, can the salesperson close a sale? And then that turns into money. But then you have all this other value exchange in the future, right? Which is, you know, people using the software. (laughs) And that's like this constant back and forth between it's a value exchange between the product and the user, right? That's happening every single day. And if people spend too much time worrying about the revenue, they don't look... Right. At the, at the other thing here, the engagement. And I think that's, that's, that's the most common thing we see, right? The reality, right, is that early stage, um, entrepreneurs, when they're pitching, and remember, like, as investors, we mostly see, see them, you know, when they're sort of pitching, they invariably try to choose the thing that makes them look best, which is reasonable, right? It's the right thing for them to do. And now the question of whether or not You know, how that relates to how they operate the company is, you know, could go either way. And the question of whether or not that's what matters to the investor at hand could go either way. Right. So there's sort of like there's sort of like what you focus on to get funded. Right. Which is largely going to depend on who you're talking to and what you think gets them excited. And then there's the question of like, what do you focus on to run your operations? You know, ideally, they're the same, but we all know that they're not always the same. Yeah,
0: totally. How about in uh, cohort analyses? Where do people... You know, it's fairly complex thing. Where do people not understand or not not fully appreciate? It? Uh, I
1: think the thing that I see the most often that annoys me is that people write down LTV to CAC. Nobody cares about LTV to CAC. Care about payback, yeah. <laughs> right? Because LTV makes some crazy assumption about future re- retention and churn that, like, likely you ha- your cohorts aren't old enough to make that claim with a lot of confidence, right? right? Um, you know, I think that's that's one sort of very specific thing. Uh, you know, there's yeah, there's no, that, That's the one that sticks out the most. But but people, I think, you know, honestly, let's be clear. Most early stage companies don't have the time to really do a lot of a really intense analytics on their cohorts. And they shouldn't, right? They're trying to build their product and satisfy their customers. This should not be the highest priority thing for them, right? Um, and that's part of why, you know, what we do is we help work with companies be like, Hey, well, we can help you to do this in a standardized way. We've computed it one million times in one million scenarios. We, we've seen every flavor of the thing. Um, and we can do it very quickly. Um, so that's more, you know, I think that's how I think about that. You know, it's yeah. like maybe the other, the flip side of it is like, um, when does a company decide to invest in starting to learn this stuff? Um, you know, oftentimes we work with companies, um, you know, at some point in during after the series A and somewhere between the A and the B where they hire their first kind of like yeah. this ops, data analyst type person. And then that person is kind of tasked with with this set of work. Um, and by and large, they kind of they get it right. Uh, yeah. Just take, take some time and effort. This stuff is not rocket science. It's more like diligence to totally. do it. Right.
0: And on, on the payback, which should entrepreneurs have a better understanding of either how, how to measure it, you mentioned no, not LTV to CAC, or how to improve it, or how, how to think about it.
1: Well, I mean, you know, we think about LTV, you know, life pay, let's go back to payback, right? Like there's a bunch of stuff in payback. Obviously, like the, your levers are, you know, the, the amount of money you get and then the, you, you know, and, the, and then the amount you spent, <laughs> right? And then the speed at which you sort of get it back. You know, I think, you know, when we think about this stuff, there's a, there's, there's a lot of this time, this question about how the dynamics go between like expansion revenue versus upfront yeah. revenue, right? Um, are you in a situation where you can capture expansion revenue? Um, how are you measuring CAC? Now, this is, this is a tricky one because early stage companies, usually the number of customers is not super high. Right. So your ability to have a really good beat on CAC is just not that great, right? And so there's going to be some guesstimating involved, right? I think one thing that we're always thinking about is like, okay, is this in a, a situation where CAC is going to go down? Because the reality is most of the time CAC only goes up <laughs> for a bunch of reasons, right? Like most obviously like your early users are like, their early adopters, they're yeah. your biggest promoters. But the other thing is there's a bunch of dynamics around acquisition, right? Like if you are buying ads, once you start getting bigger and you try to s- stuff more money into paid marketing... The system usually jacks up the price somehow, yeah. right? Uh, because there are competitors who are roughly bidding for the same yeah. users, whether it be, you know, display ads or search. And so that's that's something we think about a lot is like, are are, are there situations here where you can demonstrate that, that you actually have a handle on this? Really, maybe at some level, you know, maybe to go up a level. Um, one thing that I think about a lot is like, entrepreneurs who have a very good handle on their company, right? Like versus, you know, there's sort of a situation where the entrepreneur is like, yeah, I can make this number go up if I do this. If I take that employee over there and have them spend half their time on this, I know this number over here will move up by this much percent versus, um, yeah, I could have them spend time on it. I'm not sure what'll happen. Right. You know, I don't have full visibility into how the machine works. Right you know, the, a, a business or a product, maybe we worry about the business later, but a product is like, it's it's right, customers interacting with a product. And if you change the product or if you do something, you know, the, the pattern changes. Yeah. And part of the question at the early stage is like, do you have a firm grasp on how that equation works? Now, every entrepreneur is going to say they have a firm grasp on that, yeah. every single one of them. But, you know, I think part of the thing is that when you see a lot of entrepreneurs, you see the gradations. You see folks who really get it, like who are like, wow, they have a very strong grasp of their business yeah. versus the ones who like don't yet have that strong grasp. And honestly, a lot of times that the products are too early. The stage yeah. of the pattern of product market is just too early to have a really strong grasp on what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's one of those things, you know, like I, I think about investing a lot in terms of ex- running experiments, right? Like, especially in the seed stage, you know, you put money in part of it is an experiment. You go in and you say, well, you know i believe that if i put this money in this pattern of product market is going to change it's going to grow by this much or something's yeah. going to happen but it's also an experiment it's like well you know, if I put the money in, either it's above here and you know my experiment worked, or if it's below here, yeah. then my experiment failed and the thing probably doesn't work, right? Um, you know, every time money goes into these early stages, it has to be thought of at some level as an experiment. Obviously, until you're like this, when you're at a very late stage, now it's just purely to grow, totally. right? Um, but the, you know, that 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 stage in the middle where it's kind of like an experiment, but you're also kind of growing. That's that's I think where it's most most fun. It's most yeah. interesting to us where it's like it's no one thing is dominating. It's just a sort of very complicated, um, you know, plethora of things interacting with each
0: other. Yeah. I was talking to Ali Ahmed from Coventure recently, and he was talking about how pre-seed, you need to figure out your customer value as opposed to figure out revenue. And the example he gave was restaurant, you know, they might think it's success if the person, you know, eats and pays. But what's really important is, did the person finish their plate? Did the person take the food home? Does the person come back? And you need to figure out your L T V so you can know how to best acquire customers. If it's a big LTV, you can hire a sales team. If it's smaller, you know, marketing or ad spend uh, it, to the extent that you believe that's true. How, how should entrepreneurs be thinking about figuring out their LTV when they only have a few customers or early on?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, Honestly, the best thing to do is to treat it like a confidence interval because realize you don't know, right? You have kind of a lower bound. It's like, it's, this is the worst it could be. Yeah. This is the best it could be up here. And this is kind of the thing in the middle. And that's, that's, that's the reality of it. You don't have enough enough data right. to know. And hopefully as time you know elapses and as you get more customers, the bands on that confidence interval narrow, right? right? Like you can bet that at this point, you know, Salesforce knows very, very cleanly what the lifetime value of each customer is gonna be because they've done so many of them, right? Yeah. Um, and it's reasonable at the beginning don't know fully so it's a confidence interval but i mean like i'm not saying that everybody should like so confidence intervals but it's like you know that's it's a it's a good way to think about it right which is that you run experiments to narrow confidence intervals that's actually what scientists do you know what scientists do is they you know like if you think about particle physicists or something they generally have these graphs that are like, ah, oh, you know, here's a graph, and here's a confidence band of something percent, and then we're going to spend a billion dollars running an experiment, and the confidence band will shrink. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, um, when you think about payback, payback is like a band. It's it's uh, it has a big. Width around it, and now we give you some money as an investor, a seed investor, a series A investor, or something, and hopefully the band shrinks. The band shrinks enough so that we know that if we <laughs> shove more money, we know what'll happen. But it's kind of it's an experiment in that you know very tactical sense.
0: So don't hire a sales team until the founder has done enough sales to know that their confidence interval is, yeah, maybe. I
1: mean, like you know, uh, who knows, right? Like I mean, like certainly if if you know what's gonna happen and you hire the sales team, then. Then you will be in in a, in a in a good position. But you know, for all you know, like this is the thing about it, right? That you don't know it will happen at some level. For all, you, especially at the early stage when the confidence levels are super wide, maybe you hire those salespeople and the thing shoots through the roof. Yeah. Ah, I was right all along. You know, there's this aspect of both investing, but also running an early stage business, right? You're you're venturing into the unknown, and you know you're successful or not and in the end of the day is the success due to luck or skill right this is sort of the the perennial question right right? um there's no clean answer to that right um now that said, each of us should clearly focus on being better at skill because yeah. we, you know we only do so much for luck so so, what is it that we can do to be better at skill? Well, largely, I think one of the things we can do is is try to be better at recognizing that these two things interact in a complicated way, and you never yeah. know if if some result was fully the result of luck only or skill only.
0: yeah, I'm curious what separates the entrepreneurs who to your use your example earlier could say, "Hey, yeah, if I had this person doing you know this pulling this lever." it would you know grow this metric by, by X percent and know it with with confidence and maybe you can give an example of uh, maybe it's a facebook or maybe it's somewhere else where you know, someone said that and knew it and and or 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 what that is like.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so there's the confidence of it and there's the actuality of it, I, I think, are two different things. You know, uh, at these big tech companies that have been so good at data, they really do know. They run experiments, right? They run big, ginormous A-B tests. There's hundreds of thousands of versions of the product floating around there and they're yeah. testing everything so that they know you know, with very, very tight accuracy, what to do, what not to do. You know, in the early stages, you don't have that luxury. You shouldn't try to A-B test things when you only have 10 customers. That's dumb, (laughs) right? It really does come down to your intuition, right? Which is your intuition because presumably you have some subject matter expertise, right? And, and, you know, that's going to come through. And when you, when you talk about sort of like estimating something, some tactical quantity like payback hack or LTV or something like that that's going to have to reflect the subject matter expertise of the of the founder at hand right certainly if the founder has a decade in traditional insurance companies they're going to know these things right Um, and it's going to apply when they Start thinking about their insurance technology right. company, right? Um, so I mean, I think you know, we're, you know, I, I guess maybe from our point of view, we think about uh, we think about it as an investor a lot in terms of developing our own viewpoint. How do we develop our own viewpoint on this? And then how do we have a communication with the founder in terms of here's my viewpoint, what's yours? And how can we have a really healthy back and forth on that, like a dialogue, yeah. right? That's the best situation versus a situation where it's like they're like, oh no, it's X, and we're like, well, I think it's Y. No, no, it's X. I know. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now we get into the talent thing. Okay, this could be this could be tricky if we right. decide to do this long term. Totally. <laughs> you know, totally. And how about on evaluating enterprise companies? I feel like you guys have innovated in terms of like w- what are the right metrics that entrepreneurs? You know, there's net churn, there's quick ratio, I mean, there's a bunch of different sort of terms that sometimes founders get lost on where to where to focus. And obviously, enterprise companies or SaaS companies is a huge umbrella. But how, how would you recommend? entrepreneurs think about it or what mistakes do they make or what do the best entrepreneurs do in terms of
1: i would say the best ones know all of these and they use they use them all right uh but they don't spend too much time thinking about it right it's like it's just a language right it's kind of like uh they're all useful in their own way or they all have some history when they were useful right um and i think if anything the worst thing that Maybe the opposite of this. Here's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is you can dis- dismiss these concepts out of hand. That's something I see oftentimes where, like, would it be an entrepreneur or an investor, they're just like, "Nope, that number is not useful. I never look at that." Huh, okay. <laughs> I mean, clearly it was useful to somebody at some time. You know, at least you should understand that. And I think that, you know, having that desire to just know all the things and hopefully they're useful to you. Obviously, you don't want to spend all your time doing that. You have to build your yeah. company, but it's worthwhile to know all the things and to and or to try to know all the yeah. things, right? And apply them uh, apply them accordingly. You know, when we look at enterprise companies, you know we we know all the metrics yeah. and we use them all and in, in the context of how others have used them I think a lot of our value is combining them you know in ways that you know internally that, that we don't really talk about as much yeah. externally um, combining them in ways that people haven't done before and we also have them really well benchmarked at this point just because we've done yeah. them so many times and we're so systematic about it right yeah. if you, you know a lot of the the analogy here goes back to accounting right it's like there's sort of you could read an accounting textbook and it's great it'll tell you a bunch of stuff but that's, a, that's not going to replace looking at a thousand widget companies if you look at a thousand widget companies and you see a thousand widget companies income statements, it's going to, you know, that's going to teach you things that reading the accounting book is not going to teach you. So the articles I wrote are like the accounting book. Cool. But like, um, it's something, but clearly it's not going to replace looking at a whole bunch of them.
0: I mean, it is interesting. I I see a lot of founders say, Hey, I I wonder what my series A metric should be to raise a strong series A. And they latch onto this 1 million ARR. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, like, that's a great example, right? Where, where really the answer there is, is like, so the thing is there is no answer because if there were an answer, it would mean that all series investors are the same. and they're just not. that's that's ridiculous, right? Siri, you know, there's this huge um sort of like cornucopia or maybe maybe this whole like, there's a, a huge you know spectrum of seed investors, a huge spectrum of series A investors and a pretty big spectrum of series B investors they don't really start to normalize until quite a bit later and I'm sure that if you sat down with a late stage team at Fidelity and a late stage team you know at at I don't know you know at, at Blackstone or something or these really big ones I'm sure they would say they're very different from each other also they would say you know they're sort of the saying in investors right you, you believe that everybody who invests before you is like a monkey throwing darts, and everybody after you is a banker, no matter what stage you're in're yeah. If you a series you know and So, you know, um, so from the entrepreneur's point of view, like what metrics do I need to raise a Series A? Well, you you know, here's the spectrum, right? And it's good, useful to know the spectrum. And certainly a million seems to be sort of what the system at large has sort of latched onto for no particular good reason. We've done Series A's well before that and well after that. Totally. We think about series A a lot or the framing. We we frame the rounds a lot more in terms of stage of product market fit rather than revenue, right? There are oftentimes situations you run into where actually the revenue is way ahead of the product market fit because the dynamics of the market that they work in just happen to generate large revenue chunks, right? It's like, okay, I got one customer, but they're paying me $10 million. Awesome, and then and then you're like, okay, I'm gonna value you at a hundred million dollar post or a hundred million pre, and then you're gonna take this money and hire all these salespeople. But the reality is that like when you hire all those salespeople, you only had one proof point, you had one customer. So like, how confident can you be about how that sales motion is gonna scale out? Yada yada yada, right? So so when we think about um, when we think about you know stage, a lot of times it's more a stage of product market fit that you're at, regardless of the revenue number. It could be zero, it could
0: be like huge. Totally. Can you outline the different stages of? product market or like when you say instead of on revenue stages on product market fit stages what are some examples it's really
1: scale right it comes down to scale because it's a scale you know here's the thing it's because scale narrows confidence intervals right that's why because the thing is when i said that there's a confidence interval around payback right well what makes the confidence interval go down well (laughs) n. you have more customers right yeah scale of customers which also means Right, narrower confidence intervals on the parameters you're trying to measure. Right, and and from an investor's point of view, it's also a restatement: is what's sort of the spectrum of outcomes, right? What's the distribution of outcomes here? The distribution gets narrower as all the as all the confidence intervals get narrower as you start to know the thing better, right? Um, so all of those things are for us linked together. So it's like, okay, are you at the stage where you know, um, you know, you have like. Five customers and pretty wide bands, or you have like thousands of customers and the bands are yeah. are fairly low. So if you if you so like the confidence intervals generally go like one over square root of n. So mm-hmm. so for us that means right, it's like having you know the difference between two and four customers right is is the same as you know to get to the next level of specificity you need to get to, whatever, yeah. to you know, <laughs> eight to, <laughs> right <laughs> or, or whatever right. <laughs> it has to move up by by square right.
0: And so I'm curious to think about where you and your firm might invest in a company thinking they have product market fit where someone where everyone else might think they don't have product market fit or you think that they have more than other people do like what what criteria would lead that to yeah. the case so so generally what we find is that is that
1: every entrepreneur who raises a series A almost by definition says they have product market fit every single one of them otherwise why would they be raising a series A right every single one of them does everybody who invests in series A uh, when they So the thing is that investors generally don't challenge founders on this. It's like, yes, you have product market fit, but I'm passing because of some other thing. So all the investors seem to agree that all those Series A companies had product market fit. And I think this is where our investment philosophy is all different. We actually don't think they do necessarily. We actually think most of the time they kind of don't. Um, and that's sort of a, a differentiator, you know, for us. Uh, but if you think about like the social dynamics of investing, it's not unreasonable this plays out, right? It's like, yeah, every Series A investor, you know, entrepreneur has to say they have it. And every Series A founder has to just kind of give them their word for it and say I'm passing for something else, you know.
0: And so what are the common reasons or, what are some of them that they might think they have it, but they don't? For one example, you just gave is hey, you have one customer and you have a lot of revenue, but that doesn't mean that yeah. you've proven it out. Yeah, it's like
1: it's, it's it goes back to that statement about sort of like. You know how how predictable is the machine? You yeah. know, like is it, is it, you know, I shouldn't say like you know obviously like we'd all love super predictable machines, but if we do that, it's very hard to be an early stage investor. So the question yeah. is more like what's the appropriate level um, of risk, i.e., the what's yeah. the appropriate width of confidence intervals? That's that's you know given what you're doing and given the valuation that's being discussed and you know given given where we're at with all the variables considered, yeah. I think is is really sort of the way we think about it.
0: Are there other examples of of companies that or or, or patterns that people think that they have or are getting this false confident maybe it's either retention isn't great or something like the revenue is great but their no retention is is other sort of false positives or things that are leading founders to that they should think twice about whether they actually do have product market fit
1: well i mean like you know I, you know like i said i think that the term product market fit broadly people use it more as a marketing term right it's like we have product market fit give us you know
0: yeah written, you know, i think is, a. we have revenue we it's have users term. we have
1: and that's fine i don't think there's anything wrong with that you know yeah. they can use it as a marketing term i think the difference about us is we don't use it like a marketing term we use like an accounting term right. <laughs> which maybe is like oh that's that's kind yeah. of just the way we view the world um you know folks who who use the term in a mar- in like a you know as a marketing term they maybe use other terms when they're right. operating the business when they're trying to fire up the team when they're trying to get them to to do their thing and in our mind that's the thing right yeah. um what is it you know how is it that you're firing up your team how is it You know what is what is it how do you get your team to go right like is it just mission and vision cool but like how does that work after six months after a year right how do you get them moving towards a goal what is the goal and then how do you get from the goal to the mission and to the vision like usually those are connected and there's something in there that's measurable and and we hope that that can be the signal and we hope that that can you know we hope that we can like you know um sort of confirm the story right at some level with numbers now you know, I don't want to make it sound like we can. We try to confirm it with extreme precision because we fully understand that at the early stage, you know, that's not possible. Right. And that's what makes the early stage interesting. In fact, if it were completely solvable with data, it probably wouldn't be very interesting. Right? It's only yeah. it's only fun and interesting because it's like there's unknown, but some things are not unknown. Specifically, yeah. presumably, by the time you get to the Series A, you believe you've discovered something about customers that other people don't don't know. You believe you have a secret, right? Yeah. As, as Peter Thiel would say, right? You you believe you have a secret. And, and you're going to try to tell that secret to investors and maybe they believe you, maybe they don't, right? Um, and every investor is going to treat that differently. You know, for us, we try to see if the secret has some quantitative basis. That's just kind of because yeah. we're quantitative people. But we fully admit that like, your ability sure. to ascertain this at the, at the very earliest stage is only so good, yeah. right? but if I was
0: to paint sort of a caricature of, of, of what happens often is it founder says, hey, we have all this revenue, we have all these customers. And then you say, hey, but how, is, how predictable is that revenue? How much have you proven by how, how much customers do you how, how much have you narrowed the confidence mm-hmm. yeah. interval?
1: And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. And the other side of it, of course, is actually how subsequent investors will think. You can actually think of it this way. There's a question of the thing you're building, will that have product market fit with future investors, right? The, the furthest end of that is how does the public market value companies like this, right? And sort of how are you going to get from here to there? Because invariably the public market or acquirers are going to value these things differently than early stage investors, right (laughs) you know they're going to clearly value them differently so what's the path right does the path make sense does it not make sense let's work together on the path discuss it together you know and i think that's a lot of what it is you know it's like you know when we think about product market fit right it's a value exchange um we think of it as like if you if you have a robust pattern of product market fit then you can put different business models on top of it you see at the series a the business model is usually provisional it's not finalized right in the sense that like okay, maybe we have SaaS, but like we haven't fully figured out the pricing, exactly how we do the discounts, how are the credits going to work, right? All of that usually gets figured out quite a bit later. But if you have really strong product market fit, then all of that, you can figure it out. You will get the opportunity, right? But if the product market fits weak, then you layer on a business model, you know, unless it's perfect, it'll probably, it'll it'll likely crumble, right? Which is kind of um, a lot of what we see now. So that's how I think about product market fit and business model, the relationship between them. But when you think about like, you know, when companies get very late stage, you know, when you think about how buyout investors look at them or the public market sort of looks at companies, right? They treat it more like a business, yeah. right? And at the early stage, it's not yet a business. It's a product. It's a product that kind of has a provisional business model attached, yeah. right? And so, well, what's what's going to be the thing that allows you to turn that inkling of a business into an actual business that a growth stage investor can invest in? Well, that's where we believe product market. That is right.
0: And are there times where you've invested – or, or wanted to invest in a company, but just didn't see how the either late stage private or public markets would would value it appropriately. Or maybe put differently, for for a listener who has no context of how you know public markets value different types of companies, could you give a little bit of a little synopsis on? Well, part of it is
1: just understanding where you want to be, right? Like a lot of times when we, when we look at early stage companies, part of the thing we ask ourselves is how is this thing going to get to $100 million of revenue, right? And like, why is that the number? It's just sort of a round number. Yeah. It's not like a real, you know. Yeah. Um, but why and why the thing you, is you, yeah. have to, you have to kind of project into the future and then say, okay, let's say that happens in seven years, five years or something. Let's say you actually achieve that. What do you have? Okay, in five or seven years, if that succeeded, you have a company that's making $100 million of revenue, has some margin structure, and there are likely comps for that out there. And you should go find out how those comps get valued, right? Um, how do people value them, right? Yeah. Uh, a great example where this is played out a bunch is sort of in wealth management businesses, right? So if you look at sort of publicly traded wealth management businesses, right, they get traded at some like discount to net asset value. Whereas like in early stage world, we value them. I don't know. We value them kind of on like growth, right? And top line growth or something like that. And those two is not that that's wrong at the early stage. It's just that those two will have to. At some point, they have to meet each other yeah. at some point. And like, how are, how are those dynamics going to play out in the space that you're in, right? This is true. This is true a lot in financial services, right? Because a lot of these financial services businesses, right? They have big numbers moving around, but the values are, the valuations are sort of commensurately lower, right? And then the flip side of that is sort of in the, you know, what we saw with the social web where they made very little money but yeah. all of a sudden were valued super highly and it appears that that, that trade seems to have been sensible given yeah. sort of that they, given that those early stage companies were actually able to turn those big you know traffic usage numbers into into big dollars but you have to kind of believe that that will play out at some level
0: yeah and so mike maple says he thinks the biggest opportunity is in pre product market fit companies that's where he thinks the big investment opportunity is in his seed fund accordingly and there's a fund how how do you think about Evaluating pre-product market fit. Yeah, well, early. I th-
1: I think that there are great investment opportunities everywhere. I think there are great pre-product market fit opportunities. I think great Series A's, B's, late. I think they're all there. There can be great opportunities everywhere, right? It is a question of more like you as an investor. This is from the investor lens. As an investor, where do you want to spend your time, right? Um, is it only based on the return? Probably not, right? Most of us who, who do sort of early stage investing of some sort, we don't do it just because we don't do that sector because yeah. that's the sector where we think it makes the most money. We do it because that's the sector we're most interested, yeah. right? And then we kind of make some story about make being the most money because, you know, yeah. LPs like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that there are great, great, there are great opportunities up and down, right? When you think about pre, the pre product or pre product market fit world, right? Um, it just means there's kind of like one variable that's kind of off the table, but it also means you're running these early stage experiments in some sense right and you will be the first one to see if it works which is pretty cool right you could be that you could be there when it happens you just have to be willing to sort of stomach the other side of that which is that well presumably a lot of the time it won't happen (laughs) right and i mean you know there's other aspect of course when you work with a very early stage team is very different it's like three or four people it's different from when they're 15 it's different from when they're 50 you know working with the teams is very different and i think every investor kind of finds the the regime in which they feel the most you know exciting for
0: them Where do you stand on sort of the debate of, uh, you know, lean startup versus fat startup? And I don't just mean, you know, amount of money raised, but more so the underlying philosophy of um, lean startup. It's this sort of, um, you know, uh, find out what customers want, you know, iterate, learn, build, measure, learn. And on the other side is perhaps more the Apple, Steve Jobs, you know, or maybe it's Henry Ford, or if I asked what they wanted, I would have given them a faster horse instead of a car. Or, Hey, I need to. Build this incredible experience, and then release it. And I guess another debate is sort of, the Reed Hoffman has this quote of, if you aren't embarrassed by your first product, you haven't re- you're, you're releasing it too late or something. W- where are you in the debate of sort of, I guess somewhat as art versus science, but when to release product, how to think about?
1: I definitely, you know, I go back and forth on this one. I think there are situations. You know, like there are definitely situations where, you know, we've passed on entrepreneurs because we didn't think the thing they were doing was like ridiculous enough. It's kind of like, okay, you have some existing market structure, some economic actors doing A, B and C, some value chain that exists. And then they're like, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to create like a software version of it. And you look at the software version, the software product, it's like, okay, it's useful, but it's kind of incremental. It's just not ambitious enough. Right. It's not big enough. So so I'm definitely a fan of seeing things. People try ridiculous things. Right. But at the same time, right. At the same time, it's like, uh, you know, if you have something that kind of works, right, then at that point, you should be trying to expand it, presumably, right? If you think that that's the right path, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a Tribe, we talk about like, uh, recognizing and amplifying early stage product market fit. That's where we specialize. And we don't specialize in creating product market fit. We, we specialize in recognizing it when someone's created it and then amplifying it once you think you have, once we think yeah. you, once we agree. Or you don't
0: specialize time. in recognizing someone who could potentially create it. Based on their own yeah, and I think you know
1: this might be the yeah, and it also might be this thing that you know we believe we we believe it's not I don't know so if so much that it, you know does the entrepreneur create it or the customers create it the system creates it right like the entrepreneur sets together put together some things and then it's something that happens between the customer and the product right customers don't buy the founder yeah. customers buy the product yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. think if we you know like you know I, I, you know for for all that you know I, I think we we should. Uh, we idolize yeah. founders. You know the reality is that at the end of the day, the customer buys the product, right? And you need to build a product the customer wants, whether it be a crazy product that no one's ever thought of, or whether it be incremental, and then do that in a way that makes your business, your company succeed, right? I don't think there's a one solution here for sure. You know, there's there's many different solutions, and and there's not you know yeah there's not not one way to do this.
0: Yeah. Okay. So so in closing, here we we've, we've covered a lot that sort of explains how you uh, Ted and Arden, think about venture at tribe and, and how you think about company building, what, what can you leave us with some, some insights or some plugs as to what to expect from tribe or what to expect from working with you or what, uh, what, what you'd like to see more. of?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, the area that we're going to keep focusing on is that, is that, you know, recognizing and amplifying early stage product market fit. I think from the founder point of view, really, you know, the recognizing it is only useful insofar as we give you the feedback, right? Like we give you feedback in terms of, okay, we've looked at, we look at all these companies. We look at them the same way, pretty much every time. And when we use that lens on your company, here's what we think. And, and you know, we hope that's valuable to companies. You know, in the early stage, we've generally found it's valuable. Yeah. We, we believe it's valuable. You know, from, from the work we've done in the past. And then the other side of amplifying it is just it's the same piece of the equation, right? Is like can we can we use that to just get to the next level um, of growth? So the question is like, you know, who is the best partner for you? to grow and to amplify whatever nascent product market that you have. We want to be that, um, you know, we will continue writing articles about it, but that's, that's really what we want to be there for. You know, we're not here to like sharp elbow other investors out of the way. We're not here to like, you know, do that kind of stuff. Like we're here to be helpful and, Hopefully we can, you know, add some value into the system, you know, um, you know, through Tribe. That's really the goal that we're trying to do.
0: Totally. That's perfectly a trap. One question I will ask is, do you um do a lot of sort of like original market analysis, i.e., hey, there's this huge opportunity in insurance. We should find a company. Uh, how much of it is bottoms up for Stop Down?
1: The bulk of it is bottoms up. Now, 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 the, the funny thing about this is that I think that it's philosophically a lot of us at Tribe are actually fairly top-down thinkers. Right? Yeah. Like, here I am trying to give you like a framework for measuring right. this. It's very top-down. But when we think about opportunities, like, we really try to keep that aside because it's just, it's too easy. I think it's also because of, it's not that it's too easy. It's, it's too easy to get sort of, uh, you know, to fall in love with your view of the world. And then the world turns out to not be that. And like, you know, that's kind of silly. And And, and also, like, I think it's also from our experience sort of operating in, in startups. It's like, that's, it's not the big vision that helps you win or succeed. It's like executing, totally. right? It's, it's yeah. what happens day in, day out as you and your team are out there winning that customer, building that feature. That's where all the value gets created. Right. It's not from that top-down view. So that's why we focus so much on this sort of this operational viewpoint, this, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, yet we believe that data has an important thing to say there, which is sort of why we've created this sort of amalgamation of, 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 of features in some sense that we totally. put together as tribe.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. The reason I ask is because of your comment about how the customer doesn't buy the founder; they buy, they buy the product, yeah. and so and the market sort of pulls it out. To, to a extent so so it makes sense that you guys think yeah. about and it any,
1: and you know I mean one of the things that comes up, up up these days right I mean like the era that we're in now right technology has made it really easy to build stuff yeah. so there's no way that you build something that nobody else can build right yeah. somebody else will build it and you know you winning against them is going to be just like it's going to come down usually to like a street fight right <laughs> it's, it's you got to win that customer one customer at a time and all of that just come becomes execution so like top-down is not going to get you right. you know i mean, that, now that that's that said, we definitely do a bunch of top-down thinking and talking yeah. but it, it very it doesn't really lead our investments,
0: yeah. Do you have any counterintuitive thoughts of how you think about defensibility, or is it you know, it's network effects, it's it's data modes, it's it like. How do you guys think about defensibility differently or, or what, what mistakes do companies make when thinking about
1: that? I think it's all those things. I think the difference with us is more that for a lot of those concepts, things like network effects, you know, things like moats, you know, we have actually internal ways of measuring those things. We don't, we don't publish these, but we, but we have ways of quantifying these things. Um, there are a bunch of things that economists have actually done to try to measure these concepts at some level. Um, and you can kind of use them, um, But but yeah, we have a bunch of ways of quantifying them, which I think is the difference with us. We try to be precise with these concepts as much as possible. You know, it's very, you know... A lot of companies will come and say, I, we have a network effect for X, yeah. but like you can't pos- I mean, do you really all yeah. have it? Uh, all of you, you know, like, yeah. you know, that's where, you know, we have a bunch of ways of measuring it that really come back once again, from those social, social web days where it became yeah. very clear yeah. and you really could measure it. Yeah. Um, and you apply those same analytical frameworks.
0: And what I love about Tribe is when you meet with the entrepreneur, you will, uh, you will be frank and, and tell them where you think they have it, and where, where you think they don't, and you, you give them valuable data in exchange. That's a perfect place to wrap. We love working with uh, Jonathan, Arjun, and Ted uh, and Tribe more broadly and hope uh, hope we do more deals together. Jonathan, thank you for, for coming to the podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Eric.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash catalyst.